little while. So I'm wearing my Chick-fil-A work shirt today. Not that I work at Chick-fil-A, but I don't know that I'd mind if God had called me to a various ministry, including Chick-fil-A. I think I would have been okay with that. So uh, let's go ahead and get into tonight the life of Christ, continuing our series through the Gospels. And as always, we'll be looking at various books, not just staying in one. But let's go ahead and begin in the book of Matthew tonight. Matthew chapter 9, and beginning with a feast held by uh, Levi. The Bible tells us Levi, and this feast, of course, is uh, referring to the feast of Matthew. So Matthew chapter, looks like chapter 9 and verse 10. So this is Matthew. It came to pass, as Jesus sat at me in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So we, we see in verse 9 where Jesus passes forth. He sees a man, Matthew, sitting at the receipt of custom, says, follow me. And then immediately after Matthew agrees to follow Jesus, he says, hey, let's have a feast at my house. I mean, that's great. I think that's a great tradition. I would say that going forward, every time someone joins our church, they need to have me and my wife over now for a big meal at your house. Not a small one. This is a feast. I think that's a great tradition. But that's what they do for Jesus, have him over for a feast. And who do you think Matthew invites over? Well, not just Jesus, but he invites over all of his friends. Now, Matthew, a tax collector, was not a well-liked fellow in town. We're told that he invited publicans and sinners. Now, that would be the definition used by the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders, how they would have defined publicans and sinners, which would be people who would not be of high moral character, at least as the Pharisees saw it. Were these people thieves and murderers? I, I kind of doubt that. I'm not, not saying there might not have been some thieves there, because Matthew was a thief himself, very likely, as a tax collector. Uh, he was taking money that was not belonging to him. Yes, gave it to the, um, to the government, but he would have kept some for himself, I'm sure. And so he probably did have some thieves there possibly, but I, I don't imagine he's inviting, you know, murderers and rapists to the meal. But there were people here that obviously the Pharisees, when they look at Christ and they look at Matthew, they say in verse 11, uh, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? So, you know, I, I wonder what would the disciples have said? The disciples actually aren't given the chance to answer. Jesus Christ answers in their place, verse 12. You ever... Um, been around your kids and someone asks your child a question and you step in and answer on behalf of your child? I've done that. Um, most often with medical professionals asking my children questions I don't really believe are necessary for their age to be asking and answering. And so I'll step in and give the answer. It may be other times where people just ask a question not appropriate to a child and the parent answers on their behalf. But these disciples aren't children. But could it be that even though they're not children, the disciples, like children, are childlike in their faith, childlike in their understanding of Scripture and understanding of, of the answer to this question? And it might be that this is a question the disciples were not prepared to answer or give a good answer to. So Christ steps in. You know, Christ could have stayed back and said, I wonder what they're going to say. I wonder how my disciples will handle this. Will they stand up for me or not? There are times, though, where I believe God does allow us to, you might say, be tested and to see what our answer response is. But praise the Lord where there's times where God just steps in and says, I got this one. I am so grateful for those times. Like even if, 
even if I'm ready for the test, I'm not going to say, no, God, I don't need you. Like, I'm so glad he's stepping in and taking care of whatever problem is in my life. And here Christ is stepping in on behalf of the disciples and telling them, you know, I've got this. Let me answer this. And he says, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Now, I want to kind of open your eyes. You know, a lot of the stories I'm telling through the Gospels, these are common stories. You guys have been hearing these since you were children in Sunday school. If you were saved and as an adult, well, then these are some of the stories you probably heard first. My goal is now to help you recognize what else is going on. All right. Matthew has just agreed to follow Christ. And immediately upon following Christ, what happens? He's attacked. Right away, like the same day. You could say, well, he kind of deserves it. He's a tax collector. He's a thief. He's taking money from people. The Pharisees, you know, we don't like them either. But, you know, Matthew really wasn't a great guy. I mean, we like Matthew now. We, we like his gospel. We like the man he turned into. But can you really blame these people for being upset with Matthew? Look, the honest answer is not really. You can't really blame them. I mean, again, the Pharisees had their own issues. But the fact that they were unhappy with Matthew, Matthew's lifestyle, Matthew's choices, uh, stealing from his, his fellow Jews to give to the government and then taking some for himself on top. That's not the kind of guy you, you like to be around. But here's the thing. Matthew obviously is making an effort to change direction. Matthew is saying, all right, here's who I was. I'm going to follow Christ. It's very obvious who Christ is, what he stood for. So when Matthew says I'm going to follow Christ, he is making a commitment to be a changed man. So now my question is, why didn't these Pharisees give him the opportunity to be a changed man? Well, it's probably because the Pharisees didn't believe following Christ made you a changed man. It's probably because the Pharisees didn't believe, even if that was the case, Matthew is capable of change. It's obvious that the Pharisees hated Matthew and the people he hung out with so much, they could not in their minds believe that Matthew would ever be productive to society. And so they take the first chance they can to belittle Matthew and his friends to the disciples. They're gossiping to the disciples. And Christ calls them out and says, look, the people that need me are the ones that are sick. These are the people that I'm here for. These are the ones I came to save. Obviously, Christ came to save all, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Christ came for all died for all, calls all, but only those who accept that calling get saved. But Christ came for all. But Christ knows the heart of man. And even though he came for all, died for all, and calls all, Christ recognizes the ones who are going to accept what I have are the ones who realize they need it. He is not saying, Pharisees, you're healed, you're okay, you're whole, you don't know me, and they, I mean, you don't need me, and they do. He's saying, you don't know that you need me. They know that they need me, and I'd rather eat with them and spend time with them than with a bunch of self-righteous people who believe they don't need me. Here's my question for you. Does our need for Christ change after we accept Christ? You see, because that's actually where the Pharisees are coming from. They, they didn't accept Christ, but in their heads, we've accepted Jehovah, God, right? That in their heads. We've accepted God, so we no longer need, you know, to be around Christ or need major change in our life. 
because we've already accepted God. We've already been changed. We're good on our own now. We can take it from here, you might say. It's called self-righteous, the idea that maybe they believe God got them to a certain point, but they can, they can take it to the rest of the way on their own righteousness. Is that true? Can any of us go from where God brought us on our own to the rest of the way? No, it's not true. We can't. The only way we can go, any, to, to first of all, to the point of the cross is Christ. And the only way we can go further from that is Christ. These Pharisees have a very distorted view of what it means to be a follower of God. And they, they also have a distorted view of, of the power of God on people and how that can really change their lives. So he says, verse 13, this is Christ speaking, but go ye and learn what that means. What does that mean? Christ is saying, okay, I'm here to heal the sick. Now go figure out what I'm talking about. He says that to the religious leaders. Basically, you guys claim to teach truth. You claim to teach morals, but you don't know either. Go figure it out. He says, I'll have mercy and not sacrifice. What does that mean? Sacrifice, of course, is the uh, obligation of the Jews to, on a regular basis, bring a sacrifice to the temple on the altar, have it put on the altar as a form of worship or repentance. And so God is saying right here, Christ is saying, I'd rather that you showed mercy to people like Matthew. I would rather that you showed mercy to his friends than that you go and make your next sacrifice at the altar. He said, if I had to choose between the two, I would choose mercy over worship. Wow. That's a pretty severe statement. Now, The best case scenario is that we don't make God choose between the two, right? That we do both. (laughs) That we both worship and show mercy to people that God has brought into our life. But that just goes to show you how important our treatment of others is to God. That God says, here you are making sacrifices, and in your own head you think you essentially don't need God anymore. You don't need me anymore. You don't need to, you know, you don't need to have major changes in your life because you've already attained like near perfection, and your continual sacrifice is almost just uh, an illustration of what you've already attained, right? You don't really believe that you need anything. And the way you treat people is downright ungodly. But in your head, you're reflecting God. In your head, you act like God. In your head and in your heart, you think everyone sees you and says, wow, there is a near-perfect saint right there. And God says, it's just not true. The fact that you worship me regularly, and these Pharisees would have been as regular in their worship as anyone else. If they lived today, they would have been in the church building every time it was open kind of thing. Or I'm not saying there's a bad thing. I'm saying that's who these guys were. Regular church attenders, regular worshipers. And God says, your regular worship pretty much means nothing when you're not merciful to others. When you don't treat others with compassion, he says, for I am come to call the righteous, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That word righteous, again, it obviously implies just. He is not stating the Pharisees are just, just as he was not stating that they were healed. He is stating in your mind, in your opinion, you're righteous. You're just. You're healed. I'm not here for you. I'm not here for you until you figured out you're unrighteous and you're sick. Christian, if we are saved and we are just, we are righteous only in, in the blood of Christ, only in the act of Christ, the cross 
itself brings us righteousness when we accept what Christ did. But we are still in the flesh. We are still sick. The physician has healed us, but our ultimate final healing is not till we go to heaven. Until then, we still need Christ. And our righteousness is not self-righteousness. It is granted to us, given to us by God out of his grace. And it is a glorious thing to worship God. It really is a beautiful, I, I love Sunday morning. I mentioned it this last Sunday. I love worshiping with God's people. It is a unique experience to sing to God, pray to God, and hear the truth of God's word surrounded by people, all with a similar focus of God is great. That's, that's awesome to worship in that setting. But if that's what we're doing and nothing else, then we're missing the mark. We're missing the true expectation, and that is how we treat others, treating them like Christ treats them. Thank you. All right, let's move on. I'd like to go to um, Luke. Let's go to Luke chapter 5 now. In the same story, different book, after the feast and after the Pharisees questioned Jesus and his time spent with the publicans and sinners, Matthew himself, not long after that, we're told that others come and question Christ. Their questions are not related to those who are at the feast, but the feast itself. They're questioning why is Jesus at any feast? Why is Jesus having a feast? Who are these questioners? We're told in verse 33 of Luke chapter 5. And they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink. Now these are the disciples of John. Another gospel tells us that. So the disciples of John, are, are John the Baptist, are essentially saying, Why do we, why do the disciples of John, ourselves, fast all the time? Why do the Pharisees fast all the time? And why are you here having a great time eating food? And it seems like every time someone invites you to eat, you eat. And it seems like, Christ, all you're doing is eating. Why aren't you fasting? Now, I'm not sure that the disciples of John are malicious in their questions. We see a lot of that in the Gospels, right? Malicious uh, intent behind the questions. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think they're truly confused. I think they're also uh, partly in the back of their heads thinking it's just not fair, right? Like, Christ and his disciples have a great time, and here we're skipping meals on a regular basis, right? Why is that all this happening? Now, I want to talk about fasting briefly. There were designated times in the Old Testament under the law where a Jew should fast. Outside of that, the Bible gives a lot of freedom. If you're not a Jew, you get, all you got is freedom, right? Even the Jews, it wasn't like fasting every three days or anything. What is fasting? What is the purpose of fasting? Well, it seems when you look at fasting... Uh, in this passage and others, it seems that the purpose of fasting was to focus on God, you know, and kind of reconnect with God, and to remind yourself of the, the priorities in your life, essentially eliminating something your body wants and saying, I'm going to prioritize God, Christ, over what I want. Most people, when they think of fasting, think of food, and that's how it's presented in the Bible. I think the, the principle could be applied to a variety of things. In the past, I fasted. Um, I fasted from sports for one year, didn't play sports for a year to refocus on God. I fasted one year on, um, I didn't watch any movies or any TV for an entire year. That was, 
Uh, not very fun, I got to tell you. It definitely, I grew a lot that year, but I was glad when that year was done and my commitment was over to that one. I thought, uh, I will never commit to another year of fasting of anything. Like, I'll make it shorter increments. That was a hard one. So I fasted of other things than food. But whatever you choose to fast from, it means you are walking away from it, eliminating it from your life for a designated time of your choosing to focus on God. Now, in another passage, we're told that the disciples were trying to cast out demons. And they said, why couldn't we cast out the demon? And Christ said, well, this one only comes out by much prayer and fasting. So it seems fasting also is paired with prayer to know or to see God's power accomplished. I guess you might, in my head, I've always thought of it as fasting is kind of a way to intensify the prayer, you might say. Fasting is a way to to show commitment, not that God needs that because God knows our heart, but I guess maybe we need it more than God needs it, right? And so fasting paired with prayer is a way to see and experience the power of God in a particular area that you are seeking. In that passage, it was with demon possession. I don't imagine you experience that very often. Uh, So there's other things that maybe you need to experience or see the power of God in your life And so I would suggest the principle of prayer and fasting. That seems a great uh, thing to do. So how many times should you fast? There's no set amount. Should you ever fast? The Bible doesn't require it. Uh, If you don't fast, are you a good Christian? The Bible doesn't state that. We do have this passage, which is about as close as you get to any kind of encouragement, you might say, of fasting outside of the whole prayer and fasting towards demon possession. Outside of that, this is the passage you might come closest to any instruction with fasting. All right, so the disciples of John come to Jesus, and they say, why are we fasting and you not fasting? Christ, in verse 34, says, can ye make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? Okay, why would you be fasting uh, why would the children of the bride chamber fast? Or, or ba- not, not the, the children of the bride chamber is not the children of the bride. The children of the bride chamber would be basically the guests. Who's going to fast at a wedding feast? Especially when the bride is there, when the groom is there, it won't be fasting. It's going to be what? Celebration. It's going to be a party. We're going to have a great time. Christ says it doesn't make sense to show up at a wedding and say, all right, everyone, it's now a forced fast upon you. Like it's inviting you for a dinner wedding and there's no food, but you can't leave till nine o'clock. Like no one's going to enjoy that wedding. Christ is using that as an example. And so what is he stating? He's saying basically the celebration time is now. Why? Because Christ was among them. And so that was his answer for why there was not fasting at that point. It was a time of celebration, not a time of fasting. Verse 35, but the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and they shall fast in those days. So there you go. That's the strongest suggestion that we should fast as New Testament believers on a, on a regular basis outside of the prayer and fasting for demon possession or for some uh, desire of God upon your life. Here it is, just general fasting. It would be in the days when Christ is not among us physically. That's now. But you notice, as I've already stated, there's no exact amount. There's no specific requirement on how that should look in your life. And here's what I believe about fasting. I believe that fasting should not be forced. Churches who enact a 40-day fast of some type or a 20-day fast or a 10-day fast or even a 2-day fast, 
they may not be forcing on you, but it's highly encouraged, and you almost feel guilty. You almost feel less like a Christian if you don't join the men's group in fasting or the ladies' group in fasting. What did Christ say about fasting? He said to the Pharisees when they were walking around, he said, when you pray, pray in secret. When you give, give in secret. And when you fast, don't let anyone know. In my opinion, the idea of a church-wide fast is directly contradicting the instruction of Christ. Because of a church-wide fast, everyone knows about it, which is exactly what Christ said not to do. I'm not calling out churches who do that. I'm not saying that they are evil, wrong, unbiblical. In my opinion, the instruction Christ gave, fasting is a personal decision that no one else should know about. I, I assume your spouse would know about it because they're trying to feed you and you keep saying no. So I'm not saying you can't tell your spouse you're not fasting, but don't be posting it on Facebook, you know, your, your fasting face, right? And, and don't be telling all your friends every time you see them, oh, I'd love to go to coffee with you, but I'm fasting. And they said, I didn't even ask to go to coffee, but I'm glad you're fasting. Like, you know, you don't need to tell people that stuff. So don't feel bad, honestly, if you're not fasting. Don't feel bad if you don't fast. Fasting is voluntary desire to get to know God better, to reprioritize God. Is fasting the only way to do that? No. There are plenty of ways to reprioritize and get to know God while you're still eating, all right? So you don't have to eliminate food to get to know God better. That's not the only way we know God. It is a way. And I believe that for some, it is a great way, and for some, They have seen great success in their spiritual growth as they fast. For others, it just makes them hangry. And they really don't draw closer to God. If nothing else, they're like worse off from two days of fasting than they were when they started. You know what? Maybe you shouldn't fast, okay? Maybe your fasting needs to be something else other than food, like I was talking about earlier. Because if the the focus and the goal is just to get to know God, it doesn't have to be food, in my opinion. If, if the fasting is for God's power, God, uh, uh, something you're asking of God in your life to intensify the prayer, to, to better see God, well, look, I, I mean, how many times does that need to happen in your life? I don't know. Maybe your life is crazy and maybe it's daily for you. Well, then maybe you need to skip breakfast every day. Maybe you skip lunch every day. I don't know what that looks like. But see, that's the beauty of fasting. That's not for me to tell you. It's a voluntary thing. No one should ever guilt you. And let me tell you this. If you're ever guilted into fasting, I will tell you right now, just don't do it. Because you're probably doing it for the wrong reason, and and so it's just a waste of time anyways. So the only time you should fast is when you choose to voluntarily, and I suggest not part of a group, singly, on your own, for the two reasons that I just suggested. It is interesting how God does not give a whole lot of information about fasting. A lot of the word fasting and and the use of it is in the Gospels when Christ is talking to disciples or referring to the demon possession. In the epistles, it's it's really just not a major doctrine. And and I find it interesting how many churches want to make it a major doctrine, like these disciples of John. It is such a big deal to these disciples of John, so much so that they have to get an answer or like they can't sleep that night. It just bothers them so much that Christ is having a feast and they're not. You know, don't let it bother you. You shouldn't know who is fasting and who isn't. And they shouldn't know if you're fasting or not. So you shouldn't be bothered by what other people do about fasting because it should be an unknown, an unknown factor. All right, let's keep going. This is a great story. Let's go ahead and turn to the book of Mark now. Mark chapter 5. This is the story, of course, of the woman with the issue of blood. 
who touches the hem of Christ's garment and is healed. And uh, what a what a beautiful picture of God's power and His mercy and His compassion. Just so many character traits and qualities lumped in to one story. And this story is intertwined with another story. This is actually two stories. The woman with the issue of blood is the one who usually receives the the majority of attention in this story. But there is another woman in this story. You could say this is a story of two women, and there is a climax, and then another climax. Like, there are, there are two climaxes in this story, two high points in this story, and they both end well. One woman in this story seems to be quite older. What age, we do not know, but older. I, I don't imagine middle-aged, whatever that looks like. I'm not sure what to tell you from there. Only older because it seems the amount of time she sought help. I, it doesn't seem to imply just a couple of years. So she had to have been older to have that amount of time she refers to as seeking help. The other woman in this story is a 12-year-old girl. One woman, the older woman, is dying on the inside, you might say emotionally dead, has nowhere else to go, has tried so many things, has gone to so many people, has gone to the professionals, and they keep saying, we cannot help you, we cannot help you, only after they take her money. Oh, sorry, we can't help you. Get my money back? No, I mean, you know, you have to pay me for me to tell you I can't help you. (laughs) The woman, we don't know, but I would venture to guess the woman is probably financially at her end. She has spent so much money traveling and searching for answers to her physical problem, what the Bible refers to as an issue of blood. No one can help her. She is at a loss. And I I wonder if she's considering, is it even worth living at this point? I spent so much money trying to find an answer, and I keep getting the same one. I cannot be helped. I would imagine her physical condition is increasing over time. She's in pain Age itself paired with her illness. So much going on in her life. And then comes Jesus. Unplanned, by the way. It doesn't seem like she sought him out. It's not like she traveled to this city, at least not from what I can tell. She didn't travel to this city to be where Christ was. Christ happened to come where she was. And in her wisdom, she took advantage of that opportunity. A woman older, dying inside, possibly dying physically. The second woman in this story, 12 years old, is already dead. This young girl has been dead. doesn't seem like for days, but at the beginning of the story, the story begins with her already dead. Mark, chapter 5, verse 22. And behold... There cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed and live. Now, as Christ is heading to her house, she she already dies, because when Christ arrives, people are said she's dead. It's too late. So it's it's very likely that she is already dead by the time Jairus gets to Christ. He says the point of death. We're not told what she's dying of. We're not told why she's at the point of death. But Jairus has left his house to find Christ 
and when they get there, she's already dead. She doesn't die in Christ's arm. And you know, think of this. She didn't die in her father's arms either. This young 12-year-old girl. Can you imagine Jairus looking at his daughter in the eyes? She's dying, and he says, honey, I'll be back. I'm going to come back with the healer. You're going to be okay. His wife, hysterical, crying, barely able to hear. He says, calm down. I'm going to come back. We're going to fix this. Can you imagine the emotional trauma? As he's gone, the wife looking. Is he here yet? Is he here yet? Looking at her daughter. Is he here yet? Looking. And then she dies. The daughter dies. Can you imagine how the wife would have felt thinking, my husband promised and he could not follow through? Can you imagine the last thoughts of the daughter as she breathes her last breath thinking, where's my dad? He's not here. The dad doing the best that he could. And by the way, you can't do better than finding Christ. And that's our story. Two stories in one. As I stated, they both end well. So this man, who, by the way, is a ruler of the synagogue, what does that mean? He would have been a pretty uh, highly important fellow in the realm of local theology. He, in, the synagogue was the place where the men went to preach and be preached to and to discuss biblical theology, truth. And he, being a ruler of the synagogue, would have been a, a high-end fellow. If the synagogue was a church... And it's not, it's not a, you know, a perfect comparison, but if the synagogue was a, a fellowship of people who would get together and talk about and discuss the word of God, then this guy was some type of elder or pastor or bishop, uh, a deacon of some type, right? He was, he was some higher level guy in a fellowship of Jews who took their faith seriously. And you know what's interesting? This guy knew Christ for who he was. We find so many religious people in the time of Christ who are so religious but missed Christ, not this guy. This guy knew the Word of God so much that he was placed in a position of authority by people who loved the Word of God. And this man made the connection. And in his study of Scripture, he knew Christ is the Messiah, and this man can heal my daughter. So he gets Jesus. How does he get Jesus? Falls at his feet. I love the humility of this man. Just everything about this guy. The fact that he would love the word of God so much, he'd be given a position of authority. It didn't go to his head. He didn't become a prideful man. It didn't blind him from the truth of who Christ is. A humble lover of truth. That's Jairus. He comes to Christ. He falls at his feet, and he besought him greatly. How does that look? I would imagine tears. If my daughter was on the brink of death, you better believe I'm going to be crying, begging for God to help. Tears. David, in tears, cries out to God to heal his young son. This man besought, besought him greatly. You know the story. I, my daughter's at the point of death. Pray, come thee and lay hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live. Not that she may live. She will live. Christ, you put your hands on my daughter, she's going to live. I know that. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying it might happen. It's going to happen. That's a lot of faith. Jesus went with him. Much people followed him, thronged him, got around him, pressed him. Can you imagine Jairus, almost this humble lover of truth, having the courage to grab the arm of Jesus possibly and pull him just to pull him through the crowd? 
right? Do you, I mean, do you really think this man whose daughter, as far as he knows, is still alive? I think she's probably dead by now. But this man, as he's traveling through, do you think he's just going to be like, okay, let's wait when, whenever these people move out of the way? He's probably like screaming, out of the way, out of the way. We're trying to get to somewhere, trying to get to my house, right? He's pushing people out of the way, pulling Christ. That's how I see it. The Bible doesn't say that, but I know that's what I'd be doing. People are thronging, surrounding him. Jesus Christ is not able to move nearly as fast as Jairus would like him to. Well, there's a story right there, right? God doesn't move nearly as fast as we would like him to in certain cases, but God's always in control. Christ knew exactly what was going to happen on the way to Jairus' daughter. Christ had a plan the whole time. Just because he wasn't moving fast enough for Jairus didn't mean his plan was not being fulfilled. Got to be a little transparent with you, you know. It comes to our school and our church and a building and things like that. I, I got to tell you, I be, I'm in my head like, let's come on, God, let's go. Let me help you. Let me pull you along a little bit. And I know, I know, I know that that's not how it should be. And I got I to gotta remind myself, God is moving as fast as God wants to move. I'm not, you know, ignoring God. I'm not hiding in a closet with my fingers in my ears, la, 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 you know, saying I'm not going to listen to God. I am looking, actively searching what God would have for us next, and it's not happening. So that just means I'm the one moving too fast. God is not moving too slow. It is hard to accept, as it was, I'm sure, for Jairus, but it is the truth. Christ is not hindered. Christ allows himself to take it slower than Jairus intends. Why? So we can meet this woman with the issue of the blood, and so that when he gets to Jairus' daughter, she'll already be dead, so that the miracle will be greater than even Jairus intended. Verse 25. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. When she heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. First of all, consider this. Would Christ have been in this area if Jairus' daughter had not been dying? Whatever area of the town this was. I, I don't think, again, that this woman came from another city. I think this woman was in an area of the town, and people are saying, that's Christ. He's coming by. That's Christ. And as this woman hears, Christ is right here, she goes, not far, because he's right there, and touches his garment. The experience of Jairus' family, as traumatic as it was, allowed for this woman to overcome her own trauma. And you might be saying, what's the point? Jesus heals Jairus' daughter. Why didn't God just make it so she never died in the first place? Maybe this woman with the issue of blood would have never been healed from her issue if that had been the case. Sometimes... We know God is in control, but we can't help but question, what exactly is he doing? Why are people dying? Why are people uh, uh, struggling so much? Why, if God can heal, why doesn't God heal? And we fail to recognize that there are other events in play, and one event leads to another event. It is likely Jairus' daughter never knew of this woman with the issue of blood. I'm pretty sure this woman with the issue of blood never met Jairus' daughter. Why would they? But both of them were connected indirectly. 
And there are times where we are connected directly with someone who's died, who's suffered a wrong. And we ask, why, God? And we just don't have the vision of God, the omniscience, the omnipresence, the ability to know and see what God knows and sees and how this event that hurt us and traumatized us and bothers us, we cannot know how this event triggered other events that God is involved in, that God is doing something about. And that is where faith comes into place. Trust that God is not lazy, ignorant, that God is not unloving, uncaring, that God is not incapable. (laughs) We need to trust that God is powerful, creator, sovereign, Lord, sustainer. That God is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-present. And God's qualities paired with God's character, how could we ever doubt that what he is doing is good? Because either you doubt the character of God, his love, his mercy, his truth, his judgment, or you doubt the qualities of God, his ability to be everything to everyone that he chooses, anywhere, at any time, accomplishing all things. You're doubting one of those things because when you put them together, there is no doubt left. The only thing you can then doubt at that point is yourself and what you don't see. So let's trust God, recognizing that one event can be connected to another one one we'll never see, like here. So she touches the hem of his garment. We're told in verse 28, for she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. You see a similarity here? What did Jairus say? If you come and touch my daughter, she will live. She will not die. This woman says, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. Both of these statements were not I, a possible. It is, I'm, it's going to happen. Now, the problem with passages like this is when they are preached, that if you do this thing, you will be healed. If you go to this place, you will find what you're looking for. All right, what's the difference? The difference is it's not Christ who you are touching. It is not Christ who is telling you this. It is a man or a woman who is claiming, on, in their opinion, on behalf of Christ, claiming what Christ will do for you, not Christ claiming himself what he will do. That's a big difference, guys. Christ claiming versus people claiming on behalf of Christ, not the same thing. Christ doing versus people doing on behalf of Christ, not the same thing. And I want to challenge you, whenever you're confronted with someone who claims to be speaking for Christ and saying, if you do this, this will happen, wait long enough and you will find the ulterior motive is almost always going to be attached to money. That's a big red flag right there. They're not really wanting you to find healing. They could care less if you found healing. They just want more money. And they're hoping that in some way, throughout the process, they'll get it from you. Like this woman with the issue of blood. Gave all her money away and was worse off because of it. How many true believers of the Bible are worse off after meeting people who claim to represent Christ? Because they've been told, do this and it will happen. Just trust, just believe. Well, am I trusting and believing you or Christ? Well, you're trusting Christ, but through me. Well, that's not the same thing. (laughs) If God says it, then you can believe it. 
God says it, if someone says it on behalf of God, well, then you can only trust as far as you can trust that person. So verse 29, straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? Obviously, we, we know, you know the story. You've taught this story, right, some of you. And you said to the kids, Christ knew who touched the clothes, so then why did Christ ask? And the kids say, I don't know. And you say, because Christ wanted the woman to fess up, the woman to stand up, and the woman to say, it was me. I think that's definitely true. I think that Christ is wanting the woman to step forward and to claim that it was her. But the woman is not the only one in this story. Who else is in this story? Read the next verse. Verse 31. And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and they sayest thou, Who touched me? <laughs> Look, for sure, Christ's question was for the woman. But let's not forget, there's more people following Christ than just the woman. There is more people who need to learn of Christ than just the woman. There is more people who need to grow in their faith than just the woman, the disciples, the ones Christ was mentoring over and over again. It just seems that they doubt Christ. They doubt him to have the ability to feed 5,000 plus. They doubt his ability to calm the storm. They doubt his ability to walk on water. They thought he was a ghost. They couldn't believe it was Christ. They doubt his ability to heal. They doubt his ability to know that someone touched him. Christ is taking yet another opportunity to show his followers, I know what I'm talking about. You can trust me. Something as simple as this. You know what that shows me? I try to pattern my own life off of Christ, and even the smaller things, and how I raise my own children, and how I deal with people, I have found that there are some people who create opportunities to have like a training session with their kids, like they, they do something to make their kids do something just so they can, you know, respond in some manner to train them. They say something just so someone will respond, maybe a little snippy so they can respond back, is that really the right way to talk, right? You know, they'll create problems almost to have a solution, you know what I've discovered? Life is full of problems. Just take advantage of the ones that are already there. Stop creating more of them to have a plan, to have an answer, to have a, a talk. There are so many instances in life where your children are of their own bad choices creating a situation that you should address, not just to correct them, but to direct them. And yet, too many of us would have just walked right by, and in Christ knew the woman was healed. And Christ would have maybe smiled and glanced back and winked at her and said, yeah, shook his head and said, yeah, I know, I saw that. And keep going, right? Like, I got things to do. I'm not going to waste my time and stop while Jairus is pulling on my arm and the crowd is pressing on me. I'm not going to stop and take a time to teach my disciples another lesson. Like, I'll teach them this lesson some other time. No, Christ took advantage of opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. you got to wonder, how did the fishermen, how did the tax collector, how did the zealot, the political rebel, how did they turn from the men they were to followers of God that turned the world upside down in three years? Because three years of Christ constantly taking advantage of every opportunity to train them. And in three years, this is what you get. 
a lot of us work with children in this room, either because their children are our own, they belong to us, or because it's our job. And we miss so many opportunities to train them and to redirect them and to direct them. And then we think, like, you know, four big ones in the month are enough. No, 40 small ones in the month. That's what you're looking for. Well, one big conversation every year. No, you know, 100 small conversations, you know, in the year. That's going to do a whole lot better than one big one. Stop looking for the big ones and take advantage of the small ones, even like this, where the disciples need to be reminded once again, even in their haste. Do you think that, you ever notice that haste is sometimes catching? When someone's worried and upset and hurrying, it's almost like emotionally they transfer that to you, right? I told you, Jairus probably pulling on Jesus' arm. The crowd is definitely pressing him. How do you think the, the, the disciples are feeling, right? I mean, probably like starting to get a little anxious. Come on, Christ, like this young girl, this 12-year-old girl, we got to get over there. You know, Christ, why are you stopping? Christ, what do you mean someone touched you? Come on, Jairus' daughter, let's go. And when we get hasty, we lose opportunities to learn, not Christ. Again, Christ is never going to go faster than he intends. And Christ is going to stop when he intends to teach us a lesson, a lesson we need to know. So the lesson is taught. The woman comes forth. She says, it was me. I did that. And Jesus Christ says in verse 34, all while Jairus is, you know, Checking his sundial. I don't know. You know, all Jawa Jairus is chewing his nails while the disciples are like, seriously, like we're stopping right now? All that's happening, Christ is having a conversation, and he says, daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. All right, I want to clarify something here. Her faith to touch Christ's garment didn't save her. Personally, I believe she was already saved. Why? Because she obviously, obviously believed Christ was the healer, the Messiah. That's what brings salvation, not touching his garment. When Christ says your faith made you whole, he is stating your ability to trust my power healed you from your illness. All right, so now we're back to the whole um, prosperity gospel and miracle healers and things like that. This does not happen to every person Christ comes into contact with. Those who point at passages like this and say, if you just have complete faith, God will heal you. Well, that obviously was true for this woman. Christ says that's true. But there are other people who don't have faith, it seems, and Christ heals them anyways. There's a dead girl. She can't have faith. The girl's dead, and God heals her. Well, God healed her on behalf of her parents. Okay, well then, miracle worker, faith healer. If it's the faith of others that brings healing, then why can't your faith bring God's healing in my life? Well, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it did for Jairus' daughter. She was healed because of the faith of her dad. This woman was healed because of her own faith. And there are other times where Christ heals, and the faith's not even mentioned. There's one time where a man is healed because of the faith of his friends, enough faith to bring him to Christ. My point is, you can't use this passage to make a theology about healing. Because if you can, then you can look at another passage and make a completely different theology about how that healing works. And another passage that's completely different from the other two passages. So pick which theology you want, find the passage, and only look at that one, and now you know, right, how God heals. No, you don't, because it's different for each person. So here's the theology of healing. God chooses to heal when he chooses to heal, for the reasons he chooses to heal, however he wants to heal. And it doesn't always look the same for every person. 
I believe there's times where God will heal someone because of their faith, their prayer, their fasting. They call out to God and God heals them. And I believe God will respond to their faith in the manner he did for, for this woman. I believe there's times where God will heal because of the faith and prayer of others. Fellow Christians on their knees before God. God, please heal my grandma. God, please heal my mom. God, please heal my friend. And God responds to the fervent prayer of the righteous man that avails much and says, you know what? I will do that. And then I believe God sometimes heals purely out of his mercy because God's just a good God. And no one had even had faith in the equation. <laughs> and God did it. And people say, you know, wow, that was amazing. Maybe I should have faith, right? They, they didn't. And now they're healed and now they've got to reconsider. God knows best. And we need to stop trying to put him in a box and say he always only works this way every time. No, he doesn't. He works in a variety of ways for a variety of people for his reasons, which are a variety of reasons. All right, so we find out that he finally gets to the house where Jairus is at. And verse 35, while he yet spake, there came from the rule of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the rule of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. Verse 37, he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, seeth the tumult, them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto him, Why make thee this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. What is he saying? What is he doing? Similar to the whole who touched me thing. And people say, Christ, you're crazy. Oh, wait, he's not crazy. Someone did touch him. Hey, don't worry. She's just sleeping. She'll be, she'll be alive. She'll be back shortly. People said, you're crazy. Five minutes later, oh, you're not crazy, <laughs> right? You call God crazy enough only to find out you're the crazy one, you'll stop calling him crazy. And I believe that Christ is doing in twice in one afternoon the same thing. Don't doubt me even when it doesn't make sense. I'll show you that I am able to go even beyond logic and do amazing things. Do you notice who he took with him? Peter, James, John. Took only three. There's sometimes where God is not going to allow everyone to learn a certain lesson. There are times where God has a lesson he only wants you to learn. Sometimes that can lead to pride. Ah, you know, God chose me. Sometimes it can lead to discouragement. Oh, man, God chose me. Like, I'm the one that has to go through this. Man, I don't want to go through this. Kind of depends on what it is, the lesson God's trying to teach you. The point is this. Do not look at other people and say, I wish I could learn their lessons. I wish we could all learn the same lesson because we're not all in the same journey, at the same place in that journey. Yes, if we're Christians heading towards Christ, but not at the same place. And so God only took three because God only intended for three to learn this lesson of just how powerful he was. So, of course, we know the story. Um, they laughed him to scorn in verse 40, put all out, takes the father uh, and the mother of the damsel, them that were with him, entereth in where the damsel was lying. All right, so there's three, Peter, James, John, and two more, the mom and the dad. The dad, I think uh, very gracious of God to include the dad. This man who left his daughter's side dying, saying, I'll be back, only to come back having been told on the way she's already dead, has been dead, long enough for me to get to you to tell you that. And Christ says, I'll, I'll include you in this miracle. The trauma of the mother. Her husband left in the most traumatic point of her entire life, her daughter dying in her arms. 
Christ says, I'll include you in this miracle. You know, even if your daughter is healed, brought back from the dead, can you imagine the nightmares this mom would have had? The memories, waking up in a cold sweat of watching her daughter give the last breath, even though, I mean, she's going to run to the room, right? And check on her, check her breathing. Is she still alive? There's trauma attached to this, even if the girl came back. And I think Christ, in his own wisdom, was, you know, trying to let some of that trauma go to the wayside by letting this mother experience the amazing, miraculous power of God and letting that overwhelm whatever trauma she must have just experienced in the last half an hour or so. And that's a great truth there. When we've experienced trauma, one of the best things you can do is re-experience the power of God. Re-experience how awesome God is, how loving God is. Re-experience that. So the mother, the father, the three disciples, verse 41, took the damsel by the hand, said unto her, Talith kumai, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise, and straightway the damsel arose and walked. Now, not only was she alive, but she's healed of her illness that was killing her, whatever that was. Christ did two miracles in one. The father said, if you come and touch her, she won't die. Christ said, I'll do you one better. Not only will I bring her back from the dead, but I'll heal her of the illness so she can actually be in perfect health and not have to suffer through more days of healing. I'm not giving her antibiotics and letting her body do the rest. I'll take care of all of it. She gets up and walks where the Bible tells us in verse 42, she's 12 years of old, old, and they were astonished with a great astonishment. He charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given her to eat. Why would God tell them to not tell others? What reason? Think practically. Think logically. Think critically. Why would Christ say, don't go telling people I just raised your daughter from the dead? So why is the people doing what? To do what? Raise my family from the dead. People are dying every day, right? <laughs> Go to the graveyard, pull them out of the grave. They haven't been entombed yet. Let's pull, you know, let's 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 get them before you put them in the tomb. The, the, they just put entombed yesterday. Let's pull them out. This was a unique miracle. Christ did not intend to bring back every person's loved one from the dead for the next two years or one year, whatever the time was left. That's not his intention. I believe very strongly that's the reason. It seems very practical to me. Uh, Christ's goal on earth was to save the spiritual condition of man, not the physical. Christ's goal was to heal the spiritual condition, not the physical of every person. Christ's goal was to give eternal life, not a longer mortal life. He did heal this person, not the only one, by the way, he raised from the dead. Remember, he raised the, the widow's son. We, we saw that earlier. So he, and he's going to raise Lazarus, so there are those who are raised from the dead, but it is not a common thing that Christ wanted people thinking, I'm, I'm the dead raiser, you know, and that's what I'm going to do for the next part of my ministry. So that's why he said, don't tell anyone. All right, we're almost done. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 9. We'll end here. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 27. And when Jesus departed thence, two men, two blind men, followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was coming to the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this. 
They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. <laughs> Very similar to what he just told Jairus and his wife. By the way, this is all in the same day. If you look at Matthew in the previous passage, you'll find it's the same story, talking about the maid being healed, and then immediately following, now two blind men. Can you imagine the fatigue of the disciples? Have you ever experienced just something so amazing that God does? You have such an emotional high, right? You've felt that before? Like you, you see God's work in your life. You see a powerful instance in your life. And it brings you to an emotional high that can really not be matched by anything Hollywood does. Uh, no food can bring you that high, right? I mean, like, it, this is an amazing thing. The disciples are now on their third high. <laughs> but after a high, what is there? A low. It doesn't seem that the disciples had a chance to experience that low yet. It's just like the woman with the issue of blood, whoa. Jairus' daughter, whoa. And now two blind men, whoa. <laughs> wow, I pity their crash. Because inevitably, that's going to have to happen, right? Inevitably, they're going to have to come back down from that emotional high. And if you've experienced that, you know what I'm saying. And I'm going to mention briefly at the end of the story what that might look like. So Jesus Christ heals these two blind men, and we see now a third instance where it was the faith of the person that God was responding to. I do want to remind you one more time, that is not every case, that is not every miracle, and we cannot make a theology out of it. But it is interesting that in one day, all three people that were healed were dependent on faith. For Jairus' daughter, the faith of her father. But for the woman with the issue of the blood and the two blind men, it was their faith in Christ to accomplish this work that Christ did it. These blind men are healed. What did Christ not do? Spit in their eyes. What did Christ not do? Spit in the ground, make mud, and put it on their eyes. Hmm. Doesn't he do that other times? Yes, he does. Why not this time? Because he didn't want to. Goes back to what I said earlier. Not every miracle looks the same, and God doesn't deal with every person in the same exact way. Now, I talked about that high, right? They're on their third high, these disciples. How does this look? We're told that um, as they went, they behold... A dumb man with the devil. Wait a second. A fourth high. <laughs> They're going to have another. We don't have time tonight. There's going to be another high all on the same day. Can you imagine what it would have been like to follow Christ and have these constant emotional highs that climb and climb and climb? But then again, can you imagine what it would be like to, to, to come on the other side of that? Verse 38. Let's look at verse 37 and 38. The harvest truly is plenteous but the laborers are few. Pray, pray ye, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. Now, this text here is after verse 35, where it says, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness. That's after verse 35. I'm not saying that that statement was the same day of these four highs, the fourth one we'll look at next time we're together. What I'm saying is I think this. I think that there was probably a pattern. They would experience amazing things, but on the low side, they would hear amazing things. They'd be reminded of truth. Christ would, you might say, soften the fall for them. So as they're sitting exhausted from the day, it's like, wow, I can't believe all that happened. Christ, who is God, yes, he is tired, but this, Christ has a plan. Christ says, all right, you're tired. You're emotionally drained. You've had these emotional highs. Now just sit and listen to my voice. Just hear me. And he teaches. And in that teaching, he includes what is the goal of what we're doing. 
why did I heal these people? Why did I bring back that young girl from the dead? Why in, in one day at least, you know, four, miracle, 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 why? He said, because people need to be saved. And these miracles don't save them. But these miracles show them who I am and that I can save them. Because if I can raise a girl from the dead, I can save them. <laughs> if I can do these miracles, I can save them. I'm the Savior. These miracles are a reminder of who I am. Now, you be reminded of what it is we're doing, why we're here. You know, when we have emotional highs, I think a lot of times we don't sit and listen to Christ. After the emotional high, we listen to our own sorrows. We're discouraged and we question and we doubt ourselves and we question what it is we're doing. Some of the greatest preachers that's been said throughout history, these great men of God, they would get up on Sunday morning and preach to thousands, tens of thousands of people, Spurgeon being one of them. And yet after they were done preaching, that afternoon, the next day, they would, they would experience extreme depression, as it is said, of those closest to them in, their, in, the, in the biographies written about these men. Extreme, extreme depression. What am I doing? What's the purpose of life? And it's like, can you not see what you're doing? How could you even ask that question? But that's just the nature of emotional highs. And if you're being used by God and seeing great things done, you're going to have to come down from that emotional high. You cannot stay there. You know what some people do? They like this so much, they don't want to come down, so they create an artificial high. And when they start coming down, they do something to bring themselves back up again, artificially. And bring themselves back up artificially, whether it's alcohol or drugs, whether it's some kind of inappropriate, immoral relationship, whatever it might be, to bring them back up. Because they're too scared to come back and level out and plane out. <laughs> But let me tell you, up here, it is very hard to hear God. You know why? You know why? Because you see God up here. And it is up here when you see God, like all your other senses are overwhelmed by your sight. It's like, God is awesome. God is amazing. God is powerful. Woo! Oh, I love being a Christian. And you're just seeing God like Moses on Mount Sinai, you feel like you got to cover your face and like there's a halo above your head and your, your, your flesh is glowing because of how much you see God. It's like, does, does everyone else not see what I'm seeing? But you know what you're not doing up here? You're not listening. You're probably not listening to counsel. You're probably not listening to advice. You're probably not asking for advice because up here it's like, why do you need it, man? You're riding the waves. You don't need counsel up here. You're one with God up here. <laughs> You're not listening up here. It is down here when you're not seeing God. You have to listen to God. And when you're blind and when the dark is overwhelming you, down here in your moments of discouragement and your moments of pity, because when you're emotionally low, it's easy to pity yourself. Down here, when you say, God, where are you? I just saw you yesterday. God, I had a revelation, you know, in some form. It's like, I knew, I knew, I knew because I saw, I saw, I saw. Where are you today, God? And God says, I'm right here. But I can't see you. You're not supposed to. Just listen to me. 
Down here we listen. Up here we see. There's benefits to both, which is why the life of a Christian is this. Seeing God, woo, ah, but I can hear God. Seeing God, woo, ah, but I can hear God, right? And the moments you're up here, remember what you heard. And the moments you're down here, remember what you saw. And your life will not seem as crazy and chaotic if you take that advice. Let's pray.